0: Hello, hello. It seems to be Friday again. They're coming around quicker than ever, I feel. Um, So here we are with this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. I'm Hannah Scott-Joint and with me, as usual, journalists Leo Devine and Rosie Dawson. Good morning, team. Hello. morning, Morning, Hannah. And what has caught your eye this week? Let's start there. Leo, how about you?
1: Well, for me, and this is straight off the Religion Media Centre daily email, bit of a plug for you there, Excellent, the compilation of all the stories around uh, to do with religion. Did you know that uh, the worship of the Roman gods never quite died in Italy? Did you know that? Uh, no, and only god. last month, a new temple dedicated to the god Apollo was opened in the city of Taranto. Taranto. Uh, and the group behind the worship of the ancient gods is called Pietas. Uh, And they claim a rapidly growing membership right across Italy. And a spokesman said, I love that one, it's a spokesman said, our worship is mainly domestic and we do not proselytize, but we create temples as a reference point for the community. So there you go, Apollo, Jupiter, Minerva, Diana, they're all back. Maybe they never went away.
0: Maybe they didn't. Rosie?
2: Well, I went a bit further than the Religion Media Centre Bulletin. I went to the Jakarta Post, as you do. And there was a photograph there of hundreds of Hindus at a mass prayer event, at which apparently there were also Buddhist, Christians, Confucians and Muslims. And they were praying for the success of the G20 Summit, which is in mid-November. Religious leaders are attending alongside political leaders um, to put pressure on them to make the right decisions for the planet. The government, however, has... Responded by banning big religious ceremonies at the time of the summit. Can they do that? So there
0: you go. Yeah. Okay. Oh right. Well, I mean, that sort of leads in a little bit to to what we're going to talk about this week. Another week, another prime minister, and of course, Rishi Sunak is the first British Asian and the first Hindu PM. And we just sort of feel, don't we, that his cabinet is looking interestingly religiously diverse, including a range of Christian denominations. Rishi Sunak himself, obviously, and it has been reported that Home Secretary uh, Suela Braveman uh, goes to the London Buddhist Centre a couple of times a month, all of which made us want to understand a little bit better some of the sort of basic tenets of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and wondering sort of to what extent when someone's in public life with real influence on policy and on people's lives, how those kind of fundamentals could impact what they do. And so we're going to talk around that a little bit more. And with us is Surya Gupta, Chair of the London Buddhist Centre and Teacher of Meditation and Buddhism, and Akandidi Das, Director of the Science and Philosophy Initiative. We're very glad to have you both with us. Good Good morning. Good morning.
3: Good morning to you.
0: A candidate. can I just ask you first about Rishi Sunak as PM? I mean, a, a, an incredibly significant week for, for him as a Hindu to start the job with it being the huge festival of Diwali. And he's frequently referenced his values, hasn't he? Talked about going to the temple, lit Diwali lamps on Downing Street doorstep a couple of years ago. Almost feels like the sort of the most open a prime minister has ever been about where they come from faith-wise.
4: Yes, it certainly uh, Rishi uh, doesn't seem to uh, hide the fact of his uh, religious faith, and I'm sure that uh, it, because with Hinduism faith is much more a way of life. It's something that we are, is meant to we're meant to embody, you know, 24 hours a day, if possible. It isn't just uh, one little compartment of our life. So I think that may be because it's part of his upbringing, because it's the way his parents behave, they run um, community activities even from their home, It's faith and life is just so interwoven. And a big part of um, the teachings in Hinduism are the responsibilities that we each have depending on the roles we take within society.
0: Oh, okay. Explain that a little bit more.
4: Well, the idea is that, you know, we all have responsibilities to others that's in our family as a parent as a child towards our parents um and in society in professions teacher doctor lawyer whatever and of course governance is a big one for yeah, the society and there is so much in the hindu scriptures talking about the qualities the responsibilities of those who have power and who are in the position of care for others
0: so what, what kind of thing does it? did the Hindu scriptures say about that specifically?
4: To give you an idea, um, the story of Ram revolving around Duwali will, of course, be pretty clear in uh, Mr. Sunak's mind. And in that, it's described that Lord Ram was the ideal king. And in fact, his um, uh, rule is um, regarded as Ram Rajya, which Mahatma Gandhi tried to reinstate in India the idea of Ram Raja, which is a kind of beneficial governance where the ruler sees their um, relationship with the people as a parent for their family. And to be equal to all, to be fair, to be kind, to ensure that they have no anxiety. It isn't just a question of kind of um, protecting them providing a few services. It's actually to free them from all anxiety. Wouldn't that be nice?
0: Wow. Yeah. And so relevant now with the cost of living crisis, with the the massive anxiety that is out there in the country. That's really interesting. Rosie, you want to say something? One of the things that we all know about Rishi Sunak,
2: of course, is that he's phenomenally wealthy. And You have this uh, concept of artha in in Hinduism, of wealth alongside dharma, karma, moksha. So what are some of the attitudes within Hinduism towards creating and amassing wealth?
4: There is nothing wrong with someone through the hard work becoming wealthy, but it shouldn't be at the expense of others. And that's a very clear stricture. The Yoga Sutras tell us not to be over-acquisitionally minded. We take what can come easily through our our efforts, as long as it doesn't impinge on others. Now, it's hard to say that the amount of wealth in the hands of the Sunak family, and particularly his uh, parents-in-law, doesn't uh, impact others. But even when it is received, it's a huge responsibility because it needs to be engaged then in the welfare and service of others.
2: Thank you. Um, we've got Surya Gupta with us from the, the London Buddhist Centre. We'll talk a little bit more about Hinduism, I'm sure. But but Surya Gupta, what's interesting about, or what interests me about the London Buddhist Centre is that it is it is part of the Triratna Order, which used to be called the, the, the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, I think. Yeah, so it's exactly. it's Buddhism that... It was founded in 1967, but was specifically a way a way of introducing Buddhism to Westerners. So rather than it being the religion of maybe your grandparents' country of origin, mm-hmm. in the case of yeah. Rishi Sunak, it's for people who don't start off as Buddhists to sort of Absolutely. engage with.
3: The majority of Buddhists, uh, it's a growing religion, and the majority of them are con- converted Buddhism. I am, for example, I grew up Christian and became a Buddhist consciously. And what that really means is that we're very much learning about what it means to be a Buddhist in, you know, for our own personal lives, but also for society. You know, the Buddha, the historical Buddha very much spoke about the fact that, you know, Buddhism should impact all areas of your life, um, you know, and he sort of delineated even those areas that the kind of teaching should impact um, if you are practicing effectively. You know, but actually what that looks like is something that we're very much uh, discovering. What we do know is that, you know, well, what we're guided by is the um, values of loving kindness and wisdom. And we have an ethical set of training precepts, you know, standards, if you like, that, you know, that's helping us train ourselves. So the idea is that we're on a sort of training process whereby we're learning to sort of let go of the things that cause suffering, greed, hatred, delusion, power would definitely be you know, in there and moving towards speech and ways of being that are loving and kind. But how that looks in an individual's life and in then how they show up in the world uh, really varies according to lots of different factors.
2: There's quite a stress on meditation in your order and on mindfulness, which, of course, has has sort of permeated out into the wider culture. Um, And perhaps there's a greater emphasis on that than there is in some Eastern Buddhism where it's more kind of practice of um, monastics.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's very much around, like, you can identify as a Buddhist. You know, you might read a book, go and retreat, meditate, just like the philosophy of it and identify as a Buddhist. But then how are you going to get yourself from a sort of uh, identification to living it and that's where meditation really does come in and ethics and the community really comes in so in the meditation what you're you're aware of your frustrations and your anger and your petty you know we all our pettiness that we can go through but also our pain as well um you know that that comes into consciousness and then you've got the tools of mindfulness and loving kindness that can help us sort of work with that and transform that so, it's sort of not so much an idea. I remember when I was a Christian, I was like, I know I'm a Christian, but what does that mean? For me, I didn't quite sort of understand how to live that on a day to day basis. Whereas and for me now in Buddhism, it's kind of like, okay, I can have the idea of I'm a Buddhist, but am I actually practicing that? What's my speech like? So, for example, as an ordained Buddhist, as a committed Buddhist, we have four speech precepts, sort of helping us sort of move away from slanderous, gossipy, harsh and untruthful speech so in any any day to day i think oh that's a bit harsh you know then i'm going to bring that to my meditation and to my fellow practitioners and go okay how do i move away from this so it's very practical that's what i certainly like about very very practical very immediate
0: so actually you just said you bring that not just to your meditation but to your kind of fellow practitioners so tell me a bit about accountability Mm, very
3: very good how that works Yes, we're very much exploring that at the moment. We always are exploring that because different things arise in the community, um, and you know, so it's a it's a ongoing conversation. But if you're an ordained Buddhist, that means you've trained for a number of years. You've said that you want to live your whole life. You want Buddhism to permeate all aspects of your life, and in a way, you don't become an ordained Buddhist just by saying you want to do it. You know, you have to be seen that that is effective. You are now. You know, Buddhism is permeating aspects of your life. And then that's when you become a Buddhist. And then if, you know, as happens, we sort of fall off, life gets in the way, challenges happen, and we're not following our pre- our ethical sta- standards, then there is a whole process of accountability. You know, and it happens immediately with your friends, your spiritual mentors, your preceptor, the person who deigned you. And then, if that doesn't quite work, then it goes to a sort of more formal sort of procedures.
0: So there is that kind of hierarchical Absolutely. structure, which Absolutely. means that you can't. And a uh, candidate in in Hinduism, uh, tell me about accountability. I mean, if you're if somebody isn't living in in the kind of right way as a Hindu, mm-hmm. is there a kind of structure which means that actually they are accountable to others?
4: The broader Hinduism is part of the Vedic culture, which tries not to be prescriptive for any particular person. Rather, we find that the Vedic uh, texts seem to look at where individuals are starting from in their own spiritual paths, and what would be the next step for them, and to try and help people moving forward. Technically, there are no rules to follow in uh, Hinduism because it looks at uh, morality and behavior from a different perspective. It puts the emphasis on the individual to first reflect, who am I? What is my identity? And then from that identity that I have, uh, it it will be defined by my relationships with others. Who am I meant to care for? Who am I responsible to? Who am I meant to help? So from those relationships come commitments, obligations, if you like, or responsibilities. So how do I act authentically to fulfill my responsibilities? And that, in a nutshell, is the concept of Dharma. Dharma as something which is self-determined, really, and self discipline in following rather than thinking morality must be something I must do because other people have told me that's what I have to be and behave like.
2: I mean, we've got a Hindu prime minister, we've got a Buddhist home secretary, so I'm just thinking about how people bring their religious beliefs in this case Hinduism and Buddhism, into the sort of political sphere. I was very struck by something that somebody said on a RMC briefing last week about religion doing its bad in public and its good in private. They don't shout about their faith, doesn't mean they don't express it. It's not like they've got a rule book and they're sort of going to apply it to various policies. But I just wonder how you might expect uh, a person of your faith to operate in the political sphere.
4: Well, in... uh... In Hinduism, I would expect a person not to think that I have to impose any particular morality or behavior or situation on others because we each realize we're on a long spiritual path. It isn't just this lifetime, it's many lifetimes. Things are unfolding for us. But I would expect a leader who values the uh, principles of uh, their Hindu faith to behave in such a way that tries to encourage others, to make them feel safe, to make them feel secure, to make them feel um, satisfied um, and therefore able to contribute better to their own lives and to others' lives. I think that would be my hope.
3: Yeah, well, I think actually Buddhism and politics, particularly sort of high office, don't, they're, they're not easy bedfellows, actually, particularly in our adversarial system. So I could say, that and I'd like to say my expectations are you know people conduct themselves with loving kindness in mind, alleviating suffering for themselves and others. For the majority of people, um, you know this idea of trying to benefit as many people as possible and be able to see how the uh, actions have consequences. But, you know, we are in an adversarial system. You've got one eye on the general election and you've got one eye on looking good for your party and doing sight for your constituents. And so in essence, if you were a committed Buddhist, and it's, you know, it's not easy because it's a, it's a new religion. We're learning how to do it. We're training ourselves. It's a quite a process in development to be immersed in Buddhism. If you are, you'd be compromised at many different points, I, I, I think, and the uh, and so you'd really would need to have a very strong ethical practice yourself. You need a strong community around you of other practitioners who could you know, pull you up if you were the dispatch box and expressing harsh speech, for example. Um, and you'd need to really be committed to the ultimate values of love and wisdom. So to me, they're not easy bedfellows. And certainly, you know, my teacher has said that actually it's because of the power and because of your you're having to like the free line whip for example you're not necessarily always able to go with what you ethically think because you've got to uh, honor the party so difficult to have high office only a few examples in history i would say have done it well
2: a, a, a question for both of you i think i mean it goes back to what i was saying about religion doing it's bad in public and, and it's good in private i mean where you have got a buddhist nation uh, you know Myanmar or Cambodia or where you've got a predominantly Hindu nation as as in India I mean or or Indonesia indeed I mean do you see the faith being worked out in practice in ways that are beneficial?
4: I think there is some concern um, that in India there does seem to be certain aspects of uh, the current government which is not encouraging the harmony that was the hope of the founding fathers of India. And it's it's a complex situation, and it may have arisen from perception of over-capitulation uh, to a minority group. And that is something that I think we also see in Europe. A lot of the populism, and in America... And it happened in my home town of Belfast, uh, you know, during the Troubles, where there is an imbalance and those who uh, are in the majority feel that maybe too much has been given to others and feel that somehow or other the balance of the communities is not right. It's actually nothing to do with religion. It's to do with security and, you know, people's material uh, well-being. But it can happen and religion could be a, a part of that mix and it has to work very hard to not be.
3: Yeah, I mean, just a short answer, you know, we always got this gravitational pull of doing the convenient, doing the easy, you know, our biases and prejudices. And unless there is a deep inspirational figure that can actually point the way that transcends our self-interest, I think you could, there's always a, the, effect, the effect of, Fall into what's what's going to keep us in power, uh, and I think that's what's affected, you know, many many countries who are who have had Buddhism for many centuries. Yeah,
0: yeah. thank you, A. and Surya Gupta. Do stay with us, but but thank you so much for that. Halloween is of course on Monday. So much tat available in the shops, and I've got a neighbour across the road whose house is festooned. She absolutely loves it: webs, skeletons, uh, pumpkins. I mean, gravestones, you name it, it's there, uh, went up about a week ago. But as well as what we might think of as Halloween, there are other festivals going on uh, about the same time with similar themes. And I'm so glad that uh, Jenny Azelle is with us, a druid who runs a progressive funeral home in Darlington, and she's doing a PhD in Durham, at Durham researching modern British druidry, that's a difficult word to say. And death rituals. Yes, it is. Now, Jenny, um, I mean, all many people know about Halloween and festivals at this turning point in the year is exactly what my neighbour does, isn't it? And the trick-or-treating. But it, it sort of feels like we're missing something by, by stopping there. I mean, it's there's so much more, isn't there, uh, focused on this point in the year?
5: Yeah, I think actually it's a huge missed opportunity because most cultures around the world have a mechanism for remembering, honoring the dead, the ancestors, for continuing those relationships with the dead, obviously in a different context. When I was visiting uh, a friend in Sicily at this time of year a few years ago, the graveyards are just blazes of light because everybody goes, cleans the grave, puts candles on the graves, eats there. So you have sort of symbolically sharing a meal with the dead. And we've just lost that. I mean, Halloween started as a religious celebration. And by and large, we've just lost that. And it's just turned, as you say, nothing wrong with skeletons and pumpkins. My house is quite well decorated. (laughs) But nothing beyond that. We've lost it as an opportunity to stop and to remember what we owe to the people that came before us as much as anything else.
0: And actually, there is a sense, isn't there, in, in it, it, it the potential for it to be a way of processing grief. It's yes. is huge, isn't it? I mean, in all sorts of different religious
5: contexts. Yes. And this is something that in, so I'm not going to say in the West, because it isn't universally true in the West, I don't think, but certainly in Britain, that is something that we're not good at. and. We have a habit of anything that frightens us. We trivialize, and actually, what we've had in this country over the last few years is a huge Americanization of Halloween.
0: Yes, I was thinking about where that came from, and actually, the first thing I remember was watching ET as a yeah. child, and and them all out trick or treating, and ET on the front of the bike, in a you know that that's the kind of first thing I remember about trick or treating.
5: Yeah, and that's pretty much has been for my whole life what what happens at Halloween. But I remember my my mum in particular was really good at finding old traditions. I think this has been largely responsible for my development. She's not a pagan, but I think she she has to take some responsibility for the fact that I am. And I can remember at Halloween carving an apple into the shape of an old woman and then leaving it to sort of shrink and decay, and you've got these sort of heads and faces, and we we did that sort of thing. And of course a lot of the the sort of pre-American traditions have have sort of gone to a large extent i mean for me it was always pumpkins although pumpkins were a lot harder to get hold of i think when i was little than they are now my partner for example can remember trying to carve a a turnip into a into a lantern which is a lot harder hard work yeah (laughs) hard work yeah
1: jenny i um i'd forgotten about apple bobbing yeah. We used. To, I mean, I came from a very sort of working class Catholic background, but we always did apple bobbing. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I don't remember any of these Americanization, or well, this American culture that seems to have affected Halloween in recent times. But also in Christian traditions, we had All Souls, and that yes. very much dovetailed, I think, with what you are talking about.
5: Yes, absolutely, it did. And as I said this is really is the the origin of of Halloween in the nine hundreds, I believe all souls all saints hallow tide in in the catholic church came in which is this sort of three day remembrance of the martyrs as well as the saints and again it was a time to pause and reflect and it was a time for making connections and while it still exists within Catholicism, again, I feel that sort of focus has been lost a bit.
1: I, I live now, I should say, in Cornwall, as, as Hannah and Rosie have oh, been here for 30 years. This is a place brimming yes. with all sorts of traditions and yes. quite ancient. I mean, there's one we call Obios. Do you know Obios, which is on I May do. the 1st? I and do. it's really interesting. It's two Osses, I'll have to explain it very quickly, who, from the town of Padstow, And Mm -hmm. they celebrate this. And it's really interesting that at one point in this mesmerising song, and it's very ancient, the Os dies and then comes back to life. Does that sound familiar?
5: It's part of this sort of wide mumming tradition that is also very prevalent at this time of year, more so at Christmas. But yes, and Cornwall is just an amazing place for this sort of thing. One of these days I will get to spend Halloween in Cornwall. It hasn't been this year. This year it's going to be Anglesey.
1: Come on down, I'll give you the tour. Thank you.
5: I will. us a bit about this, this festival, which isn't pronounced Samhain, but that's how it's spelt. Is it Samhain? It's pronounced Samhain, yes. Tell me um, about that. It is an ancient Celtic festival. The word Samhain means summer's end. And the Celts, as far as we can see, split the year into two halves rather than into four seasons. So it was the light half of the year and the dark half of the year. And Samhain marks the beginning of the dark half of the year. What it doesn't, or at least there is absolutely no evidence that it was originally associated with the ancestors or the dead, going back into pre-Christian times. The association of this time of the year with the dead does seem to come very firmly from the church so it's um,
0: that way round because people tend round. to assume don't they that the christians have just you know grabbed hold of a pagan ceremony
5: everything and gone with it and this this is one of my uh my things actually the the relationship between christianity and paganism both now and in the past is very very much more complex and it goes both ways and it's actually much more interesting than just to say that one one group has stolen things from the other in this case Paganism has come to appropriate the association with the dead that is associated with the Christian Halloween, but it has made it into something so powerful and so important. And for a lot of pagan traditions, and paganism isn't a religion, it's an umbrella term. There are a lot of different religious traditions that are absorbed within that. And for most of those, Samhain is one of the most important, if not the most important, festivals in the year.
2: And can I just ask what it is with apples? Because I was reading somewhere that heaven is meant to be full of apples. The afterlife is meant to be full of apples. I don't know if, if that's a sort of any sort of pagan pagan belief. But we did apple duking as kids. It was yeah. the only. It's the only thing about Halloween that we did. Um, and you got water up your nose, and it was it was all it was all great fun. Um, but I remember, uh, yeah, I, I just remember doing that. So I just wonder if there's
5: anything that's particularly significant about apples. Just that it's
0: it's autumn, autumn. Yeah, maybe. Well, this
5: is it. And in in Britain, in particular, we don't have very many indigenous things that are sweet. If you think about it, honey and mead is also deeply significant in in pagan thinking, and there are quite a lot of stories now. Unlike with, um, with pagan Greek and Roman religion, Celtic revivalism, I suppose, it's in a difficult position because we don't have any original sources that were not written by Christians. So there's a great deal of guesswork. We really don't know what pre-Christian religion was like in this country at all. But there are stories that come through to us where apples are clearly very important. And they're often very important in the context of the preservation of youth. And they are often things that come from the other world. And I think this may have, well have something to do with their importance at this time of year, apart from the fact that they're there at this time of year, of course.
1: All, the, all these traditions, are, I remember somebody wrote once that the thing about Britain is you can go 10 miles up the road, the accent changes, and there's a different yes. name for bread. You know, yes. and I, that's, that's how it is. But I remember when I went to college in Yorkshire, I'd heard of Mischief Night, which I think is around yes. this same time. And yes. that's got its origins, I think, in Halloween,
3: has it?
5: Yes. And that's what my I can remember my grandfather when I was very little. He died when I was five. But I can remember he used to talk about mischief night and that was what they did. And it was it was a similar sort of thing, you know, if they because um, he said he once went to a, a house and it was it was a sort of trick or treating type thing. Yeah. And um somebody gave him a coin but they'd put it on the fire so it was hot sort of burnt his hand when they gave it to him because people did things like that to children in those days and, uh, <laughs> and he took their gate off the hinges on his way out. So, you know, it's, it's this sort of thing that was
1: Ooh, going We'll be doing a bit of that then tonight.
0: <laughs> just just before we close, I mean, it is interesting. We were talking earlier about about sort of processing grief and actually that being, you know, to, to kind You sort of get the feeling with Halloween or it's become, I think for a lot of us, a feeling that things are about, it's about being sinister and being scary yeah. But actually, it's the kind of um, fairy tale tradition, isn't it? That in kind of facing up to the darkness, you somehow kind of manage to, 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 to sort of deal with it better because there is darkness in life. I,
5: I think this is one of the big things about paganism. Actually, is that in a lot of religious traditions, contrast light and darkness, and associate darkness with badness and light with goodness, and in Certainly within Druidry, which is my tradition, there is a a lot of good and there is a lot of comfort and there is a lot of power in the darkness. And darkness is not evil. And if I can just go back to what Leah was saying about the Obios, one thing that does happen at this time of year in Cornwall, in Boscastle, where the Witchcraft Museum is, as I'm sure you know.
1: I do, yes.
5: um, There is a huge gathering there of this weekend, actually, of the Mary Lloyds. And the Mary Lloyd is a, again, it's originally a a Christian tradition or it's a cultural Welsh tradition based in the south of Wales, where people would go from house to house with a horse's skull on a stick, with a white cloth over it. And there's somebody underneath sort of operating the jaws because the jaws clack. And these are the Mary Lloyds or the white mares. And this has become, I would say in the last 10 years or so, a really big thing within paganism. And they represent again the dark half of the year, and they have they're regarded to some extent as psychopomps that conduct the souls of the dead to the other world. And there is a huge gathering of them in Boscastle this weekend from all over the country and all the Mons and a lot of uh, border Morris sides there as well. And it's a celebration, it's a huge celebration of the beginning of the dark half of the year and also of the ancestors of honoring and acknowledging that they are still very much part a part of our lives and this is the thing one of these years I will get to it I've never got there because it's a ridiculously long way away for me but tell
1: uh, me about it
0: also, <laughs> there's this one time of year and you want to be in all those different places so it, it is it's
5: very difficult actually As I was saying to my partner the other day there's at least eight different places I want to be tomorrow and it's very
0: <laughs> it's a lifetime's work, by the sound of things. Jenny, that's so fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us. I don't think we've got time for any quirks this week, Leo, or have you got something you can throw at us? Oh, a little Why one. Because on.
1: on. I, I, I know you think I'm obsessed uh, with stories about Christian communion um, practices.
0: Uh, yeah, no,
2: no, no, Leo. So we
1: had drinking from the one cup last week in a COVID area. This is a very quick one. I got this from CNN. Uh, it's entitled Italy's Pious Village with a Profane Secret crunchy yet tender sweet and high in calories there's a peculiar italian snack which is actually sandwiched between two communion wafers believe it or not this is an absolute true story it's called the osti Piene, and it's a mouth-watering mix of almonds and honey stuffed between two communion wafers obviously not consecrated but um it's it's a big tradition apparently in italy and the, the story of that and there's always an interesting story is that a nun was making a nutty cake she drops them on the floor and 10 second rule obviously she scooped it up with the communion wafer and invented this treat there you go ostia pieni
0: thank you i think we need the bishop back from last week to uh to tell us what he thinks about that but thank you so much to everyone who's joined us today, Sriya Gupta, Daddy, and Jenny. It's been fascinating. That's this week's Religion Media Centre podcast. Let us know what you think. Share it widely. But for now, from Leo, Rosie and myself, thanks so much for spending some time with us. We'll be back next Friday. Bye for now. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings, and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk, where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have, or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter, and it's hugely appreciated.